Hello, and welcome to Visually Sacred. My name is Arthur Agajanian, and I'm a Christian contemplative and essayist. In this podcast, I speak with thought leaders working in the intersection of art, visual culture, and religion. Thank you for joining me as we explore the rich and complex role of images in Christian history, culture, belief, and practice. In this episode of Visually Sacred, my guest is Dr. Robert K. Johnston. Robert is Senior Professor of Theology and Culture at Fuller Theological Seminary, where he has taught students how to engage both biblically and theologically with movies, popular culture, and contemporary fiction. He is a recipient of the Weyerhaeuser Award as Teacher of the Year at Fuller, as well as a former provost both at Fuller and at North Park University. Robert has been a member of the ecumenical juries at the Locarno, Cannes, and Venice Film Festivals. He is an ordained minister in the Evangelical Covenant Church. A co-director of Fuller's Real Spirituality Institute and a past president of the American Theological Society, Robert has written or edited 15 books, including Deep Focus, which he co-authored with Cutter Calloway and Craig Detweiler, God in the Movies, which he co-edited with Catherine Barsotti, God's Wider Presence, Don't Stop Believin', Useless Beauty, Ecclesiastes Through the Lens of Contemporary Film, Finding God in the Movies, also co-authored with Catherine Barsotti, Real Spirituality, and The Christian at Play. Robert is the editor of Pop Culture and Religion from Ben-Hur to Zombies, and Reframing Theology and Film, New Focus for an Emerging Discipline. I had been looking forward to sitting down with Robert to discuss how cinema can feed our spiritual growth. As he is one of the foremost figures on the subject of theology and film, and film has always been a great passion of mine, I was looking forward to hearing his thoughts on an array of issues, from how the movies have influenced the public's perception of Christianity to the ways film can inspire theological reflection. Robert also shared his thoughts on the challenges posed by new technologies that have influenced the way we watch films in our current digital age. I hope our conversation opens new doors to film for you and encourages the building of bridges to others through one of our most commonly shared cultural experiences. Rob, I'm honored to have you on the show today. I have always been an aficionado of cinema. And when I began writing on art and religion, it was wonderful to discover your work. It became a place to begin learning about some of the important principles of film in relation to theology. As you've been a leading voice in this area for many decades, I look forward to hearing your thoughts on important issues around how we experience film. We're also going to discuss how theological interpretation can enrich our experience of the medium. So welcome to the show. Thanks. It's really fun to be with you. It's a topic that's obviously dear to my heart. Right on. Let's begin with your own history and how your interests developed. Your theological studies began in the literary arts, but you eventually gravitated to cinema. What brought about this change in direction? I'm curious about what was going on around you. What were the main concerns of the day in the field of art and religion? Yeah, I, I maybe can go back just slight before that and say why I became interested in art and religion 
has to do with when I was a teenager, I would bring, I would invite my friends from school to church and they would come. And if they were nice, they would come once or twice. And then they would have some excuse as to why they couldn't come. <laughs> and if they were typical junior high or senior high school kid, they just say, this is boring. I don't want to be there. And I, I had the question, why is the gospel, which is good news, heard as bad news by most of my friends? And it was as a freshman at Stanford that I took Robert McAfee Brown's course in theology and contemporary literature. The first year he offered the course, this was the early 60s, hmm. there were 17 in the class. I took it his second year. There were 573 in the class. Wow. And he basically used film as a dialogue partner with theology. And we would go back into the dorms and we would stay up until two and three in the morning talking about, there are only 5,000 undergraduates at Stanford. So if you have 560 in the class, you have 10% you have of the student body talking about those novel stories and how they related to your own story and to God's story. And I thought, wow, that is phenomenal. In the 60s, John Updike, Saul Bellow, Bernard Malamud, so mm -hmm. on, they were not only good conveyors of what was happening in culture, but they were shapers of culture. They, they were culture movers. Right. But by the 90s, we're moving from modernity to postmodernity, aren't we? Or by the 90s, no novelist is a shaper of culture. You might still read some novels, but they're, they're, they're fun, they're footnotes. But they're not at the core of our American identity. What is? Film has become the way the culture tells its stories. So there was a, a sort of natural evolution. In fact, theology and literature, Nathan Scott, Paul Tillich, University of Chicago, that was the first of the disciplines to, to develop in terms of engaging with popular culture. There was no such thing as theology and film in the 1960s. Film was too recent a, a, a discipline within the, the academy, but it's also film was still growing in importance even in the, in, the, in the culture. Sure. So I shifted along with it. There's, there's a very interesting book by Mitchell Stevens, a, a sociologist at Cornell, written at a popular level. Actually, it's a good book for non-academics, just normal people, called The Rise of the Image, the Fall of the Word. Mm. And he documents that there have only been three or four major changes in how we communicate through Western civilization. We went from an oral culture to a written culture. Right. 
And then with Gutenberg, we went to a print culture. We don't often think about it, but that changed a lot of things. You didn't have any indexes in your books prior to the printing press. Mm -hmm. You the, the the way you organized material simply changed given printing. And now we're moving, it's a hundred year process or so, from a print culture to an image culture. You know, so that was a natural transition for me. Mm -hmm. And I have been interested in theology and story, theology and the culture's story, because I wanted I wanted my friends to engage with Jesus' story as good news, not as bad news. And I could do that by putting it in conversation with the culture stories. Sure. Of course, film has its own unique language of image, sound, and editing, something that most of us understand automatically due to its dominance in our culture. Its conventions have been adapted for television and video games as well. What attraction does the language of cinema hold for theology, and how is such a study of film different from theological study of the printed word? And did you sense or did you have to make uh, for yourself, uh, did you have to shift in important ways in your own mindset and your own approach to material uh, in order to take on film in this way? Yes, and I'm and I'm still shifting. Uh, I mean, I I, th I think anyone listening, just think about the difference between the sixty year old, the forty year old, and the eighteen year old with regard to the computer. Mm -hmm. Maybe everyone uses it, but the eighteen year old has a a leg up. They, they, it, there's a natural usage that is something that it is a second or third language to the 60-year-old. Right. Now, that's exactly what happened with regard to the whole discipline of theology and film. The discipline of theology and film, myself included, was much too word-oriented, much too tied to the, the script, mm -hmm. the screenplay. And that, that's certainly important. I'm sorry, are you talking about an early an, an earlier phase of theology's engagement with film? Sure. So in the 90s, even in the early 2000s, most people would look at how theology and film was done, and they would say it was too word-centric. Hmm. We all, I think, are getting better, and the new generation of scholars is getting better. If you have a discussion with your teenager... They see things in a movie that you didn't see, and it just comes naturally to them. So, you know, how, how, do, how have I changed? Well, one is I began, I think, at the right place. Namely, you first listen to the story. I call it a reverse hermeneutic. You, you don't first begin with your theology. Mm -hmm. you, you begin with a piece of art. Right. I, I sometimes use as an example, when I was, uh, my daughter was 
oldest daughter was young. I was dean of a seminary. I'd come home from work, lots of things happening, and I was committed to not doing anything while the kids were still up. And then if I had work to do, which was often, I'd, you know, when they went to bed at 9.30, I'd work until one in the morning and then, but sometimes those ideas, you know, things would just keep coming in and I would be thinking about what I needed to do. And my daughter would be talking to me maybe as she was in bed before she was going to sleep. And I thought I knew what she was talking about. So my mind would start to wonder. And I, I knew exactly where I was, how I was going to answer her. And then she'd look at me and she'd say, Dad, you're not listening. Ooh. Ooh. And what would I do? Well, what any father would do. I stopped thinking about that and I looked at her and I say, I'm sorry. You know, this, this, say it again. And almost without an exception, when I really heard her, I responded differently. I mean, there was a nuance. There was there was sure. something more there. Yeah. The same thing with a piece of art. So you begin with look, listen, receive. Get yourself out of the way. Right. Yeah, that's always imperfect. You're you are listening. But but you begin with all your effort to to let that story talk to you. And and you have to learn. For example, do you like to go to a movie and arrive five minutes late? I don't think most people do. I can't stand it. Can't stand it. Why? Because in the first five minutes, you are fast forwarded right into the action of the movie. Well, besides that, it, there's also just, if you look at the film as an entire uh, unified piece of work, it, you know, if you take sections out of it, you don't have the experience of the whole work. It doesn't matter Absolutely. where that section is, or even if it's for a minute. I don't want right. somebody even walking in front of me in the theater. I mean, that, right. that drives me crazy. Right. But, but, but the opening is particularly important because it, it functions. You only got an hour and a half to, to get you into the heart of the story. Mm -hmm. Or if we're in, I'm in Southern California, people walk up and down the street of Old Town saying, do you want a ticket to a free movie? And what they're doing is they're trying to get a, an audience full of, of people to look at a movie that's almost done. They're showing it, and then they come out afterwards and say, did you like the ending? Mm -hmm. And they give you something to write you know, about the movie. And if, if the ending didn't work, they don't release the movie. They, 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 they go back and change the ending. And when we look at symbols, you, uh, image, it, you're right, it's not just words. When a movie is made, everything is a decision. Nothing is accidental. Right. That color, that ball that's on the table, that dress, that lighting, all of that, somebody said that's a better way of getting the story across. And so all of that becomes useful, important. The music, wow. You can remember, I, I certainly can give you examples 
of movies that were simply spoiled by the music. Or did you see the movie Up? Yes. The first three minutes, not one word. And you see the story of that couple and the heartache and the, the hope as they live their life and hope to get to Angel Falls without a word being spoken. But I sometimes show that with no music. Mm -hmm. And then I show it again with the music. Man, the music empathizes, slows you down, speeds you up, connects. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 it's the fabric of that story. Well, that's another thing I think we take for granted, uh, the way the music works with the image to, um, to, set, to set the tone and, and, and how, how you're drawn in as an audience member. Yeah. Now, I was going to say, your question was, does that make any difference for theology? Right. I mean, is there something that's that's is there something about film that really lends itself to a theological imagination? I think Catholics more easily say yes than Protestants. There are probably five Catholic filmmakers in the U.S. for every one Protestant. That's pretty interesting. Hmm. Why? That is interesting. Well, Catholics or ex-Catholics doesn't matter. They it's in their bones. There's an afterimage. Uh huh grew up right. not with having somebody explain to them in words how Jesus could be both God and man, but rather looking at a picture of Madonna and child, of Mary with baby Jesus naked with a penis every day of their life. Now, they might not have a rational explanation, in their imagination, in their soul, in their spirit, there's an understanding. They have the sacrament every week. We Protestants are lucky if we have it once a month. They have sacramentals. They, they come into the, the church and they, they take some holy water to remind themselves that they need to be clean. So we have always been image and word both Protestants and Catholics. That's Christianity. Right. But that right. perhaps film is helping us realize that as we transition as a culture to an image-based culture, we can think about our story in that way as well. So you think it's a sort of a natural extension of the way we come to our beliefs and the way a religious upbringing shapes us through images, that it's, it's kind of a bridge to go into cinema from there? I, I certainly think it can be. It, it, can be a, it can be a way of practicing that we know in multiple ways. Hmm. You know, I, I can remember my first job it was a, at a state university in Kentucky, had a large religion department, and a religion and philosophy department. And the head of the department was a 
rationalist, basically love equaled acting properly and that words were necessary for him at all costs. And I would say to him, Ron, do you ever take your wife out to the lake when there's a full moon and you're sitting in the front seat of your car looking at the lake as the moon is shimmering in the lake and you're holding hands. Is anything being communicated between you and your wife? And he'd sort of humph and, and, you know, in a sense, begrudgingly admit that there, there was other ways of communicating truth, beauty, goodness, than simply word. Now, that doesn't mean that the word isn't important. My own sense is that theology and film has to do with story, and story has a word base to it. Right. And so uh, you can do other kinds of art. There's, there's theology and art. There's theology and music. You don't have to have a word base, but story has a word base. And, and so that's what I think film is about. Actually, when you were talking earlier about the place of the novelist in culture today, I was thinking about how screenplays are often adapted from novels and then turned into films so that at the root of a film project is the word. Well, there is in the script, of course, but right. also in the inspiration in the context of, of the book that it comes from. So maybe writers are at the center of culture after all. Yes. But as you know, if, if the adapter, if the screenwriter tries to be too faithful to the novel, you almost always have a bad mm -hmm. movie. Well, the screenplay is the sort of intermediary, isn't it? Yeah. But it, but it has to have its own freedom. It has to, it has to recognize at times yeah. we're not going to say that we're going to show it. Right. We're, we're, you know, we're going to consolidate it. And, and, it, and it's a different process. Is it with film too, where they say show, don't tell? Sure. That's a film thing, isn't it? And, and there are exceptions to that. But you got to be a good artist or to get away from it. Otherwise, what you have is a sermon or propaganda. Mm. That's probably what's wrong with a lot of Christian film. Even film with heavy dialogue. The challenge there is is to make that interesting through camera placement yeah. and what you're yeah. emphasizing and the sound and et cetera. Yeah. Otherwise, if it were just if that awareness wasn't there in terms of the art of the editing and the way light is used and and so forth, the visuals, you would have something that would be very dull. Yeah, and and usually voiceover, if it's overused, mm -hmm. makes it a less vibrant movie. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're really a good artist, there are exceptions to every rule that work. But just speaking generally, right. voiceover is a lazy way of trying to get what's communicated, communicated. To begin analyzing how a film works on us, we need to have some basic tools at hand. Much of what we process is unconscious as we sit in a theater and let a movie wash over us. 
But going deeper with film, as with any art form, requires education and an awareness of what's intrinsic and what's important to the medium, some of the things that you were mentioning. So with this in mind, how would you guide a viewer through a theological analysis of film? That's not something that is widely understood as a methodology. So what can a conversation between theology and cinema teach us, and how do we arrive at those lessons or those surprises, maybe? I think we've already talked about step one, which is you first listen, or you first look. Right. You are the audience. You are the receiver. And, and so you need to first receive, get yourself out of the way. Just as in any personal communication, if you take over too quickly, the other person realizes this is really not a conversation. It's, it's a monologue and, and you're not really taking seriously first what the other person is, is trying to offer. So you, you begin there. Mm -hmm. Theology is always, is always incarnate. Theology is always a dialogue. When you go to, to, a, to church and listen to a sermon, I don't think there are very many people who have gone and listened to a sermon by Red that was John Calvin's or Martin Luther's. Well, why is that? Well, it might be good theology for 1600, but what theology is about is taking that biblical truth and walking up and down Main Street with it, taking that story right. of God, God's story, and putting it in conversation with our story and letting the two merge and, and you having a dialogue so that... Number one is to receive. Number two is to respond. And that the, the movie will give you the focus for response. What often is the case, well-meaning Christians will try to criticize a work of art, in this case film, for what it doesn't do, but that's not what it was trying to do. <laughs> so in, in, instead, the gracious thing is to say, what did it accomplish? Mm -hmm. What did I learn from it? What questions do I have? How might it inform or deepen or be corrected by my understanding of God's story, and you simply have a conversation. Mm -hmm. it, it can be quite sophisticated, but it need not be. It's what, it's what we do. I, I tell a lot of people, what I teach is simply how you put the culture story into conversation with your own story and God's story. And that's something that we do poorly or well every day in multiple arenas. 
And it's just simply, here's a particular arena where somebody has thoughtfully shaped a story with some conviction, with some truth, with some attempt at beauty, with some understanding of goodness, and is inviting us to learn from it. Is it new? Does it give us a new, somebody else's experience that isn't ours? Does it challenge us? Does it seem to not fit? Is it surprisingly opening us? And, and we have that conversation. And, and in fact, you know, you go with your wife or your friend to a movie and you go to Starbucks afterwards and one person says, that was a great movie. And the other person, oh, I thought it was sentimental and it didn't do anything for me. And then you have a, a debate mm -hmm. and it actually is a, it's okay to disagree. I think that's another really wonderful thing about film and theology, theology can learn from. We, we can be open to learning from those who disagree with us. How do we go to that theological dimension, though? Because if we're having, if, if two people are sitting down after watching a film and discussing, analyzing, critiquing, that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with uh, the spiritual dimension. Well, at least not consciously. If you're a good film goer, I don't mean you're particularly bright, but if you just, what was the film about? You know, you, you see the movie up and you begin talking about getting old and not having friends and wow how important mm. that little Korean kid was who, who came alongside and was willing to be there and even though he was obnoxious I mean he, he actually was a friend and and you you begin talking about the meaning of family well you might not be using God, but you certainly could. It certainly invites your further understanding. So you as a Christian are saying, you know, my understanding of family, that's what family should be. Huh? Wow, that they were willing to do what was necessary for each other. What, what, do, we, what do you think about family today? We... Seems like we're there's a lot of self-centeredness or whatever. And and you're off and running. And if you're trying to do something in terms of of response to the film, you might then look for what is a biblical understanding of family or of, of friendship. The the problem will be when you think like in the Christian music industry, for a while there, you, you needed to make sure you used the word Jesus three times or didn't qualify as a, a Christian song. We don't need to baptize everybody as a Christian in order to 
hear from them, learn from them, thank them, and integrate that into our own understanding and talk about that in terms of our Christian faith. So the movies become then uh, an invitation into deeper conversation and connection with others, which can, uh, in many cases, inevitably lead to consideration of the the larger truths Absolutely. Of, of our lives. You know, some script doctors, some people who analyze movie scripts will, only, will say there's only four or five really myths, four or five arcs of stories that are around. Mm-hmm. There's a whole bunch of stories that are rooted in the core of Christian truths. Not all of them, and and those are the maybe in some senses the easiest to dialogue with. But did you see the movie Logan, for example, the last of the Wolverine movies? Oh, yeah, actually I did. Yeah, I forgot all about that. Yeah, so Hugh Jackman, that's a Christ figure. Right. Here's somebody who intentionally gave his life to help another kids get to possibility to heaven, possibility of get to to Canada in that case. But it's a a direct analog. Mm -hmm. Well, just the the theme of redemption itself is so, uh, it just- Yes, absolutely. It, it's just it's widespread, you know, in in films as a uh, as a construct. No, that's not the only kind of film you look for. You know, you don't want to find redemption under every mushroom. I mean, that's that's you you want the film to set the discussion parameters, so that if the film is about family, if the film is about violence, if the film is about Redemption, if the film is about suffering, if the film is about the wonder of life, all of those invite your Christian conversation and delving sure. as deep as you possibly could go. And once you ask that question, I in 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 the class I taught, I've taught for years in theology and film, I would have students lead a film discussion, get a group together, and then lead a discussion. And and one of the students early on said, you know, I used the film in my small group. We've been meeting together for two years. And we had come to know how far you could be vulnerable and how much you had to protect yourself. And you only went so far in terms of opening up. But that movie was was another conversation person in the room, and it mm-hmm. it was willing to be vulnerable at a level we had not yet been, and because it was vulnerable, we began to respond to it out of our own mm-hmm. inner selves, and it took our our Christian dialogue to a new center. I think that's absolutely true. Well, I was going to say that uh, cinema is actually a sort of, it's a force for gathering around too. I mean, it's it's something as something that's so much a part of our culture and something that everybody is connected to in one way or another. Most people are. 
uh, that's if you talk about a book you've read, right? You know, how many people in your social circle are going to be able to relate? But everybody can come together around, certainly around major mainstream Hollywood blockbusters. Everybody has opinion. Everybody has an experience of it, and so it becomes a common. Yeah, sure it becomes like the campfire to gather around so that those conversations can happen. You know, I, when I go to a party, let's say in the neighborhood, and I don't know very many people, and you're just making small talk and you're meeting people, and people come up and say, what do you do? I have two choices. Mm -hmm. If I don't want to talk to the person, I say, I'm a theologian. And that's funny. Within <laughs> 30, 60 seconds, they've moved on. Whatever their understanding of uh -huh. a theologian is, it, it, it's esoteric. It, it's it's not them. You know, they're they're right. afraid they're going to be stuck right. in a bore, boring place. If instead yeah. I say, I I I'm a teacher of religion and film, you say, Oh, really? I I I wouldn't put those together ordinarily. What what does that mean? And what's right. your favorite film? Right. And all of a sudden, you have a half an hour discussion mm. with that person. Yeah, I can imagine. And, and it's just night and day that that film becomes the the common ground in which everybody feels safe expressing an opinion. And also not intimidated, right? Because uh, the average person would be intimidated probably by uh, somebody saying, I'm a theologian, because they'd feel like they don't have the, the chops for the conversation, or they're going to say something stupid or offensive or ignorant. I think it's even beyond that. You're absolutely right. In that, for whatever reason, the culture allows us to have different opinions about film story. You think it's great, your wife thinks it's wrong, and you can smile and you can argue at the same time. If you're talking about politics, you can't argue and smile at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, everybody's a film critic. I mean, everybody's got an opinion, right? If, if, they're, if they go and see the film, I mean, it, and, and in a lot of cases, they won't go and see a particular film because they're because of their film critic bias that that goes to what you're saying regarding getting yourself out of the way uh which i i hear as making yourself open to receive and with, with kind of like you know a, a polished mirror you know or a clear lake so that you can take it in completely and then and then make of it what you will but when you're talking about that kind of openness to what one is watching. And of course, this goes to almost anything. You're, you're making an analogy to personal relationships and being attentive to others. This is a little bit off the cuff, but how many uh, professional film critics do you think go in with that kind of generosity? If you're, if you're going to say, if you're going to pick a percentage. How many do you think really are open to what they're receiving as opposed to going in with an agenda? And can you tell in their writing, in their criticism, does it become clear to you when you read film criticism? Rather than try to answer with percentages, let me say uh, Roger Ebert did that. 
I can remember a review in which he said, go see Simon Birch. I'm surprised by it and so on and so forth. And he said, that's why I'm a film reviewer. I, I, want, I want to share that joy of discovery. Justin Chang of the LA Times. Mm -hmm. I know him personally, and he's been head of the whole guild, a warm Christian. That's exactly how he goes into it. I think uh, David Anson, for, uh, that was with Newsweek for a long time, absolutely right. that's what he did. So I, I think good reviewers mm -hmm. are challenged by their fraternity so that if, if, if they have a hobby horse, it, it becomes pretty obvious pretty quickly. I think one of the things, one of the recommendations to whoever's listening is I think it's pretty important in terms of knowing what films you're going to look at to have a, a stable of two or three or four reviewers and you trust them. And you're not going to always agree with them, but you'll over time figure out that I tend to like what this person likes, or I tend to agree in this way. And, yeah. and they become your sort. I mean, there's no way you can see everything. Mm -hmm. The question I'm often asked, okay, you're supposed to not judge. You're supposed to just give yourself. What happens if it's terrible? Or what happens if it's demonic? Well, one way is let the community of of viewers help you be be your guide and a justin chang becomes a, a great person to yeah. to help you sort out and and then you won't watch everything he reviews he's paid to review everything and you won't watch it because you read what he said and you'll say ah oh, that's not for me i i that's not a story i need to to listen to or mm -hmm. watch it's it's funny you're making me think about in in terms of this whole thing of reading criticism and using that as a guide i was in a focus group many years ago it had something to do with the movie going experience and for some reason i've always remembered there was one question that we were asked it had to do with do you rely on movie critics to judge what films you're going to go see? Does it have an impact on you? And most of the people in the group, they were all men within a certain age range, close to my age. Most of the people said, no, it doesn't have any effect on me, or I don't read those things, uh, et cetera. I think I was the only one who said proudly, oh yeah, I mean, those people, you know, they're spending their, you know, all of their time, you know, with the material of our, of our, this material of our culture. I mean, I trust that they know what they're talking about. Not all of them, but there's a reason why I will always, uh, almost always, I should say, go to uh, Metacritic after I've seen a movie. And I, 
for a while, I was thinking, I want to have some kind of a system where I can kind of go through and read different critics for different periodicals, you know, kind of cycle through so it's, it's not always the same people or figure out which are the ones that I want to kind of go to each time. But I've, that failed, and I found myself drawn to certain people, and they always seem to come through. They're, they're, they always provide new perspectives and insights, and they give me handles to start to explore a film from a particular point of view where I might still have, especially if it's fresh in my experience, uh, just a jumble of feelings and ideas. They help me kind of direct my, um, my inquiry into what I just experienced and help me to formulate my own ideas about it. And that's, to me, part of the experience itself, actually, yes. kind of the, the post-game show. Yeah. And, and it, it, the reviewer doesn't need to be a Christian. The reviewer just oh, no. needs to be a, a good viewer. Now, it, yeah, like I didn't know that about Justin yeah. Chang. And, and another very good, very good reviewer who is a Christian is Alyssa Wilkerson, who is the reviewer for Vox. And she teaches at King's College in New York. And mm -hmm. her husband is a filmmaker and very, very sensitive. So, you know, Justin and Alyssa are are right at the top of their field at the moment and would be very open and engaged in the conversation we're having right now. Now, movies and religion have had a complicated relationship ever since the birth of the medium in the 19th century. How have the movies influenced our perception of religion? Can you briefly walk us through some examples yeah. of that? Are there some high points where there's been a clear impact that we can look back at and say, oh, well, that happened then, and here is how it then, how, how things changed. I think uh, the quick bullet points mm -hmm. in the first decade or two, movies were new, exciting. The Presbyterian Church bought projectors for a bunch of its churches along the East Coast. They would show them on Sunday nights. Often they were silent movies, and often the preacher would be preaching <laughs> a sermon that had nothing to do with the movie while the movies were being played, but not always. So as not to lose any time. That's right. Not always. Um, by the 20s, it, there were scandals in Hollywood, and there became a, a tension between the church and Hollywood. Mm -hmm. And... Then as it, as it sifted out, all the way up until about 1965, the church and religion were off limits for movies. And so you had the sort of Bing Crosby and the singing nuns, and, and, and you, you couldn't criticize mm -hmm. the church. And that it typically tended to be a Catholic because it was easier to show that they were church or a minister because they had a collar and so on. Mm. From 65 to 95, we could say, when the, the ban was lifted, some would say Hollywood then became cynical and was unfair to the church. Michael Medved, Hollywood versus America, and so on. 
actually people have done some fairly detailed studies and films probably were 50-50. But when they used to be zero criticism and 100% Pollyanna, 50-50 sounded like criticism all the time. Mm-hmm. But by the late 90s, in the culture, we were beginning to realize that not everybody thinks alike. That was when Yankelovich and partners were beginning to do segment-focused advertising. That's when you were beginning to advertise to women only or to, to an ethnic group only or to young only. Mm-hmm. And, and you, didn't, you, you didn't say, what does America think? You, you instead said, are there 20 million Spanish-speaking people who we could get to buy this product in this way? Right. Tar- targeted advertising. Yes. So then you began to realize that maybe there were targeted movies that were possible. So mm. rather than just say religious movies were not acceptable or nobody was going to look at them, you began to say, oh, maybe there's 50 million people out there that would be attracted to that. It also is about the time when we were recognizing that we are more than just our reason. So, you know, that lots of terms are used, but if you say postmodern, not in a swear way, but recognizing that there was a move to recognize that there's more to life than simply the analytical, that you could build a building because it has arches and pretty design, even if they're fake, you know, so that the postmodern architecture was some of the first move in that direction. By the late 90s, there were any number of films that were deeply spiritual by intention. Mm -hmm. And that that there were movies that were Christian by intention. And that that's only continued. Right. Now, I think it's fair to say that there was a suspicion in Hollywood that Christians only wanted to be there to create propaganda. Mm-hmm. And that, unfortunately, there was enough truth behind that to justify some of those suspicions. Most of the explicitly Christian films of the 60s, 70s, 80s that were made by the Christian community weren't very good. There were the occasional movies that were coming along that were made by Hollywood, Tender Mercies, Places in the Heart, uh, Chariots of Fire. You know, there maybe were one or two a year that were phenomenal, but they almost always came not from the Christian film side, but they came from the Mm -hmm. film side that had had a Christian theme. I was called into ministry looking at the movie Becca. That movie is 
Richard Burton and Peter O'Toole, but the story is about St. Thomas of Becket, who was murdered on the steps of the Cathedral of Canterbury for saying, I must serve God and not the king. That was not a Christian movie, but it was a deeply Christian story that changed my life. So when we say a film is Christian, what are we talking about? That's exactly the question. Does it, does it need to have Jesus in it? Right. You know, um, what, what, what qualifies? Does, yeah. it, does it need to be made by a Christian? You know, so so there are films like Martin Scorsese's Silence. Right. That was an explicitly Christian movie by a Christian, but not out of the Christian movie context. Right. But then what would be another example? Well, I was going to ask you about typologies of Christian films. You know, well, it, can 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 they be organized according to, or even looked at on a on a spectrum of, on the one hand, you know, yeah, I, I, anti, you know, anti-religious films, and on the far end, films made by Christians. Yeah, there are films made by Christians to express their faith, to evangelize. Those films have actually gotten better. They tend to be more propaganda than films. They tend, at their worst, not to be art. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe uh, God is not dead. God is not dead too would be examples. When Anschutz took over Regal Film, uh, Regal Cinema, and a couple of the other large cinema chains, a fine Christian man, he provided a window of opportunity for Christian filmmakers to get some of their films shown in uh, major theaters. Mm -hmm. And those are simply getting better. There's absolutely no question. Well, how are they getting better or why are they getting better, do you think? They're more artistic. The, 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 they're, they're not meant to be simply propaganda. They're meant to be Christian stories. You think those filmmakers have learned a lesson from their predecessors, that they're, they're making a point of avoiding being uh, dogmatic? Yeah, I think they're not only learning from their predecessors in the church, but learning from their predecessors and colleagues in the industry. So more open, maybe, then, to, yeah, they're, to what film they, can do. They want to be a good filmmaker. Yeah. So they're not there yet. They're they're certainly not, but but it's much better. Then there are those movies that have always been made out of the industry that have a Christian center, mm -hmm. and that oh you know I sus I suspect that you and I could sit here and come up with fifty really wonderful movies over the last fifty years that are deeply theological and informing, uh, deepening, uh, that we would respond well to. There are those movies, and, and Silence would be one of those. Maybe Hacksaw Ridge 
would be one of those. You know, those those had those intentions, but but you had filmmakers, whether Mel Gibson or Scorsese, who are good artists. <laughs> and that even when they had an intention, mm -hmm. they were first of all artists. Right. If if you're talking about novels, if you want the parallel, I, I Kurt Vonnegut would be a novelist who had an agenda, but he was a good enough novelist that the agenda didn't become propaganda. Right, it remained a good novel, but that's very difficult to pull off. Yeah, but I, I anyway, and and then there are those movies that have. Christian themes that are made by non-Christians. So what's what's the name of the movie that might well win Oscars this year? Banshees. Oh it's yeah. That, mm -hmm. It's the story about yeah. a, a, a broken friendship. Yes. And and it's it it's a beautiful film. Yeah. By Martin McDonough. Right. His previous movie was Calvary. It also has the same actor, Gleason, in it. Mm -hmm. And it is about a priest who is hearing a confession in the confessional by a man who says, I was molested by a priest for five years when I was a kid, and it destroyed my life. I'm going to kill you, a good priest who's innocent, just as I was a good boy and innocent, in one week. But you have a week to put your life together. And it's the Passion Week, and we follow him to Calvary as that priest accepts his vocation. It is a powerful, wonderful movie mm. that makes you think and feel deeply. He's not a Christian. And in fact, I've interviewed him, and he, he won't even dialogue theologically about the movie. Uh -huh. Okay, but in fact, that's what the movie's about. <laughs> that, that he chooses not to do that is for his own personal or for uh, marketing reasons. Mm -hmm. He doesn't want to scare people off, but the reality is that's what he's done in his movie. Mm -hmm. And then there are a group of movies that are not theological explicitly at all, but who invite theological dialogue. And those are the kind of movies I actually try to teach in most of my classes, because the others are 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 obvious. I mean, mm -hmm. should you dialogue with Calvary about Calvary? Duh. You know, I mean, yes. What are some examples of those uh, the films you're referring to? Can you give us a list of a few of those? Sure. Um, well, we talked about Up. Any... Any good story is scratching at truth, beauty, and goodness, which all come from God. 
they are they're making claims about reality. They're making claims about what is right in terms of the 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 fundamentals of life. And they invite us to then in, learn from it and question it from our own understanding of the f- fundamentals of life. So that any of the Oscar nominees of this year, take uh, you know Spielberg's movie about himself, The Fablemans, that's inviting our conversation about family, mm-hmm. about inheritance, about destiny, about can can we transcend our parents' limitations? Mm-hmm. All of those are are hugely important. I think a, the coming of age story too as as a model. Yeah. Mystic Pizza. Did you see that one? And yeah, absolutely. But I mean, so it's 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 really a I mean, I you know, teach at Fuller and so we tried to put together a a book uh of ten best movies for theological dialogue. Oh, that's cool. From each of the last four decades. Oh, okay. So forty forty movies. And they aren't necessarily the mm-hmm. best movies, but we argued and said they're the best 10 right. of that year that invite this sort of theological conversation. Has this been published or is this something you use in an academic context? Baker's published it. So we had one earlier one, Finding God in the Movies. This one's called God in the Movies. Okay. You can make your own list. I mean, any, any good story, that's, mm-hmm. that's true in terms of a novel as well. Right. It's it's inviting our engagement. Right. Criticism, you know, doesn't only have to do with trying to understand the work of art and the artist, but it also includes the the view of reality of that work of art mm-hmm. that the artist has in, in placed in, imbued in the art. And it involves how we receive it as viewers. Mm-hmm. Right. And that that aesthetic circle of, of creator, worldview, work, receiver, yeah. audience, if, if you don't take all of those parts of it seriously, you, you haven't really understood that work of art. Yeah, that's a really good point. You know, I wanted to circle back at the very beginning of our conversation, you were talking about different generations and, and how we get film and uh, the new technologies. I wanted to address the question of the multitude of platforms now for yeah. receiving films. New platforms have really changed the way we watch movies. More often than not, we're watching them on screens at home. I remember in college, Back in Richmond, Virginia, I felt so lucky to have a video rental store in the city from which I could rent classic, foreign, and alternative films. Um, it was a gold mine for me. And for a while, I was a projectionist for my university's alternative wow. film club. It was How called, fun. actually. Yeah, it, wow. was, it was a blast. I got to watch some great films on celluloid. And, uh, but now, 
we get movies from every direction in the most convenient ways, which also means that the demands on viewers have changed or maybe even disappeared. What impact do you think the current proliferation of formats will have on the theological experience of cinema? Because it seems like those are the issues now that are, that are coming to the forefront. I mean, I can't help but feel like when they have those little advertisements sometimes in the movie theaters about the magic of the movies, it's this yeah. desperate bid to get people to keep coming and, and not stay yeah. at home and, and, and wait for it to, to, to be streamed. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of sad, actually. <laughs> I, I, I actually agree. I, what we talked about earlier in terms of movies as having a different way of storytelling that's image and music as well as word. When you're watching that movie on your iPhone, image becomes less important. Mm -hmm. Plot, narrative takes over. Surround sound becomes only sound. Mm -hmm. So that there's a diminishment of the, of the storytelling experience. There's also distraction, right? It's coming from every direction because you're not, you're not isolated anymore. Right. You're driving a car while you're doing it. Oh, man. <laughs> I hope that's not a common practice. <laughs> and, and so the first criteria of listen, receive yeah. is, I, w I don't want to say it is compromised. It's not, it's not eliminated. I mean, the iPhone is pretty good. You watch it in different places. It, you know, you you pick it up. You you have kids. You, you know, you watch half a movie and then you watch the other half the movie when the kids are asleep. It can work, but there's a price. So so one, there's a compromise at that opening mm -hmm. level. Yeah. But my own commitment. Not everybody agrees with me is that theology in film is about story. It's about the conversation between the culture stories, our personal stories, and God's story. How the culture tells its story can change. But as long as it's in the storytelling business, it's going to be basically the same thing. You're going to, whether you get it streaming, whether you get it, small or large, whether it's new technology. Okay. If it is no longer story, so as things morph, it might be another art form, but then probably we're doing something different. I mean, so there's music and theology, there's fine art and theology. And those are wonderful disciplines in and of themselves. Mm -hmm. But they're not story in theology. Um, so I'm not, I'm not terribly concerned that there are multiple platforms. There's a, there is a sense in which the common story is less readily available. And in terms of conversation with my friends, conversation where you're using film to engage, to learn from others, and to share with others is more limited. 
when there were, what was it announced today? I think there were 299 different adult written TV series stories last year. And they thought that might be as much as the market can handle and that it would actually move back the other direction. But if there are 299 different stories with multiple episodes that we put into the culture, obviously there are, it's like the books you were talking about that you read a book and it was great, but you can't talk to talk about it to anybody because nobody else has read it. Right. There's a sense in which that proliferation of storytelling has made it difficult for the shared conversation in which we can learn from the clear vision of others and we can put ourselves into, be participants in the conversation and add to the agenda or add to the conversation from our own perspective because we're all increasingly individualistic. So it's atom it's because it's so it's an atom, atomized market. And that's yeah. It. And that that to the degree that happens, I I think as a culture we suffer. Mm. So I'm I'm not a, a real fan of the hyper individualism that seems to be dominating. And I I probably am not a fan of also where the media is going is they're giving you suggestions that that you like that fit with what you've seen before. Yeah. And so that we're all sort of watching our little group, uh -huh. but we're not being challenged. What art, what film does is gives us the opportunity to hear somebody else's story that we would never hear otherwise. Uh -huh. I mean, I, we just came back from the Palm Springs film festival and you know, we were just there for four days and saw eight, eight movies. We didn't try to cram in so much. But but they were eight movies from eight different countries. Mm -hmm. And and they were stories that I would never think about. I mean, they, they were people that I would never meet or encounter. Mm -hmm. And I'm a better person for those experiences with those people. Yeah, that's a great way of, of, of thinking about it, how uh, going back again to this uh, idea of how film can help us understand our neighbor and uh, allow us to see the world from yeah. other points of view, which only enriches and expands our own world. Yeah. And it, it doesn't mean we need to always agree with them. It, in fact, it doesn't mean that. But at least we're aware. But I think to be able to have some empathy. Mm -hmm. Right. Even becoming aware of other types of worlds, yeah. you know, and uh, experiences and life situations is is something, right? To, yeah. to, to, to have access to that as opposed to being stuck in a limited set of formulas that you continuously uh, consume and that are regurgitated by 
the movie industry uh, as a way of ensuring an audience and ensuring a profit. Right. I wanted to uh, finish up with this question. Why are the things we're discussing important for all Christians? And how do you think these issues impact the larger world? Yeah. Well, I don't think necessarily they're important to all Christians. Christians have different values, life experiences, opportunities. Not everybody is a film lover. That's fine. I think everybody needs to be ushered into the experience of others who are not like them. But if that happens through reading, fine. Mm-hmm. If that happens through music, fine. I, you know, I there there. If that happens by serving at the soup kitchen, fine. You, you know, I I. But that, for many of us, we have thought of film only as escape and only as entertainment when we put our mind at zero. Right. And there's time when we need to escape and there's time when we need to simply veg. But film is artists, filmmakers are telling stories that are scratching at reality, at truth, at spirit, at goodness, at beauty, or the or the lack of it, mm-hmm. and are are doing that by the by portraying or suggesting the opposite, mm-hmm. um, and that they are an invitation for us to go deeper into life. It's a medium in which uh, in two hours and then a cup of coffee around a table, it's both enjoyable and informative. It's both entertainment and education. It's the opportunity to connect with the rest of the world, including our neighbor next door. My wife and I have had a movie group for 20 years, close to 30 years, meets once a month, we show a film, and then we have a meal in the style of the film while we sit down and talk about the movie. And there's a waiting list of people that want to be involved. Christian, non-Christian, if I go up and down the street to my friends, to my neighbors, and say, would you like to be part of a Bible study? Basically, most of them are going to say no. Mm-hmm. We've done it. You go up and down the street and you say, would you like to come see a movie and have a dinner in the style of the movie and talk about it? And they all say, oh, that sounds interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When, 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 when are you going to do that? Mm-hmm. I mean, it is an opportunity for engaging people to talk about the stories of their life, which then becomes the opportunity to share your own story, to empathize, and to invite them into God's story. I find that simply an exciting, winsome, engaging discipline in a world that desperately needs coming together. That's beautifully stated. Rob, not to pun, but this has been a very illuminating conversation. 
Thank you. And uh, though film and theology is in itself a very large area of study, I think we've unpacked some really important issues. I hope that listeners will be able to bring some of what you shared with regard to the many layers of the cinematic arts to their own movie-going and film-viewing experience. These are valuable lessons that I know will provide much enrichment and reward critical thinking, as well as support our spiritual development. Thanks for sharing your knowledge and insights with us. This has been great. Thanks, Arthur. It's really been fun. Blessings. Thank you. Blessings to you. Thanks for listening to Visually Sacred. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest from me, Arthur Agajanian, please visit my website at imageandfaith.com. You can also join my Facebook group, Contemplatives and Conversation, and follow me on Twitter at Art Agajanian. I hope you'll tune in for the next episode of Visually Sacred. Thanks for joining us.